I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Carla Marie Manley, Ph.D., author and clinical psychologist. Her new book is Joy from Fear, Create the Life of Your Dreams by Making Fear Your Friend. So many of us go through our lives hampered by painful memories. Aware of them or not, they can trigger tremendous pain and prevent us from thriving in our lives. But the more conscious of these fears we are, the more we can break free of their hold. In her new book, Dr. Manley shares the keys to overcoming fear. Instead of denying it, we need to face it and heed its inner voice. Her method helps us detach from fear and learn from it, teaches us how to separate constructive from destructive fear, and guides us in how to find the meaning in our fears and use it to our benefit. Based in California, Dr. Manley combines clinical knowledge with a holistic body-mind-spirit approach, integrating yoga and meditation practices into her therapeutic work and course offerings. Welcome to the show, Dr. Manley. Nice to have you here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, we're going to be talking about our fears, with, I guess, which includes all of us. Um, and the, the, the key to this, to your book and to what you have to say is that we have these hidden fears that guide our behavior, guide our choices throughout our whole life, and yet sometimes we're not even aware of it and cause us to make or to live in, in ways that are have a, a negative impact on in ourselves, our family, our work. So... What's the first step for us? How do we uncover these fears, these, the, this negativity? The first step for most of us is to actually realize that the process is taking place and to not blame ourselves because it starts when we're young. Parents, in their very well-meaning, well-intentioned fashion, tell us, don't do this, don't do this, you should do this, you should do do that. You shouldn't do this. And so we learn we're indoctrinated at a very young age on what society expects from us. In many cases, it's really positive and keeps us safe from harm. In some cases, it keeps us from knowing what is best for us, what is best for the life we want to live, particularly as we get older. So, um, and sometimes parents, because they haven't cleaned up their own childhood damage, pass on their issues to their children. And, and so then the child grows up in the parent's footsteps and being afraid of following passion or being afraid of living the life they want to live because dad says they should be an engineer or mom says they should be a nurse, you know, whatever it might be. And so as we move forward in life, once we reach our 20s and 30s and start to really individuate, and some people actually never go through that process, but if you do start going through that process, you might sense that you're feeling stuck that you're feeling immobilized, that you're held in relationships or work settings where you're feeling unfulfilled, stifled, stuck. That's Let's, the key. That's the key. Okay, an example. Give us an example in your clinical practice of actually just what you've been talking about because I think that is true. Our parents try to, even if they don't want to, impose their own values and the shoulds. I, as you're talking, I'm thinking about those shoulds. You should do this. You should be an engineer. You should go to this college. Uh, and then what you're saying is people become fearful of doing something else or they sort of bury their own as you say, passions or motivation to do something else, and then in their 20s or 30s, they, hey, maybe I'm not doing what I want to do, or they start uncovering these fears. What's usually the motivating factor? I mean, because you talk about this the developmentally kind of, people start to individuate, which means separate from their their parents emotionally. Um, are, are there any kind of sort of precipitating events that sort of cause that to happen and people do take a look at like why what's their narrative and how are they operating um, so there's no particular time I was alluding or, or stating you know 20s and 30s and that would be the natural time if we were following a rhythm often which is where the idea of midlife crisis comes from often it, it really happens in one's 40s 50s or never a person just plods through life but as far as a precipitating event and wanting a clinical example I can think of a great one which must be why I you know use the word engineer I have a client 
who, a um, wonderful person, in her very early 40s, came to me suffering from severe debilitating depression. So black and dark that she was at a point where she wasn't able to clean her home or get out of bed, very basic things. Yet she was managing to still go to work every day, do her job well enough that they weren't firing her. There was a very particular type of job where firing a person would be difficult. And um, she happened to be an engineer. And so as we traced back to why she was an engineer and why she was in a profession that she absolutely, um, I think it's safe to say she detested it. There was nothing she liked about it. We traced it back, and it was actually easy for her to realize that it was because of her mother's um, demands that she has a college degree, a high-paying job, a secure job, um, so that the mother would never be left Um, wanting for anything, wanting for money, wanting for safety, and the mother wanted to be taken care of because at that point she had no husband. And so the daughter diligently had followed the path set out for her and was doing her best to meet the mother's needs. And she had eventually um, married, but the marriage wasn't a success. I'm speaking of the client. And so when she came to me, she was just a heap. It was life was extremely difficult for her. And so we kept working on finding ways where she could slowly but surely find little joys in life, face the mountain of fears that her mother would collapse without her, that she would be a bad daughter if she did what what was important to her in life, that she would be a horrible person if she was not an engineer but chose a path that you know, felt right for her. And she's still in the process. She's actually, you know, still working as an engineer, but in a different office that is much different um, and more positive for her. And at the same time has been channeling, and this is what's new for her and really helping her break free of her depression. She's taken some courses in alternative vocations. She is following her passion, which is what she would love to do with her life. And she is quilting. And that's her dream. That's her, that's her passion. And she's starting to sell her quilts and going to quilt festivals. And she looks to, to you know, any other person like a completely different woman. She is radiant in a soft way, but, you know, the, the difference is night and day, and she has some work to do. She's, you know, still going on her pathway, and she has, you know, house payments and that sort of thing, so she can't give up the engineering immediately. But that is an idea of how the process can move, but it takes a lot of work, a lot of faith, a lot of diligence. When you say it takes a lot of work, and obviously I would assume a lot of motivation, um, do you think that's the reason that maybe many of us, and maybe it's not so extreme, this is a somewhat extreme case because she was very attached to her mother and, and was really doing something she didn't want to do and became depressed, but let's say for, mo- for many of us who are sort of in the middle, who are being guided by some of these fears, who aren't really aware of it, but yet it's something that we need to pay attention to. So how do we be... How do we start to pay attention to the fears that are, as you say in the book, I mean, they're fears that actually we give them like bad memories, burying these bad memories of what mother or dad or whoever wants you to do stuff you don't want to do and allowing it to give us, have so much power over us. Um. You know, and that's a really good example of taking taking the middle road and looking at somebody in the middle who, where it's not a dramatic example and not a very low-level example, but the general population. And how does this affect, you know, Susie down the block or yourself? And the way I look at that, it's the same template. You just have to slow it down and then, as you said, use the motivation piece. So you look at your life and you say, well, maybe I'm not exercising as much as I want to. What's my fear around that? 
what is my fear that would keep me from exercising or, you know, getting out there and meeting my neighbor so I don't feel as lonely? And that's actually a really good one is because so many people suffer from loneliness, from feeling disconnected. And so I tell people, well, look at the fear. What is the fear? If you, if you reach out to, you know, the lady at the gym or your next door neighbor, what's your fear? Why don't you do that? And often somebody will say, well, I'm afraid, you know, though, I'm afraid it would just scare me. Okay, well, why, why does it scare you? Well, they'll say, no, they don't want to be my friend. And there you have it. In this case, it would be the fear of rejection. So rather than putting oneself out there, and yeah, the person might not take you up on your offer to go on a walk, but that's okay. They're not really rejecting you as a human being. They're simply rejecting going on the walk. And so when you use that template of just chasing the fear, following it, and then looking at the constructive side, and this is where the motivation comes in, and saying, okay, now I'm af- I, I realize what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of being rejected. So now if I want to build friends, you know, a, a friendship circle, if I want to connect with others, I'm just going to have to gently ask people that I'm interested in if they'll share time with me. Maybe they'll come over and bake cookies. Maybe they'll want to go see a movie. And if they say no, I'll ask them if they'd like to do it another time. And if they say yes, I'll ask them again. You know, respecting boundaries, but plodding forward rather than letting the fear chase you back into solitude, which is what happens. And okay, so that's a that, great example, that one of people being lonely. And yes, as you say, I think there are, there are statistically a lot of lonely people, uh, misguided, as you say, and, and uh, fearful of being rejected. What are some of the other fears? What are the most common fears besides that one? Because there must be a slew of them that, that we all have in common, sort of that middle of the road common fears. Oh, goodness, I think another really big fear is a fear of intimacy. <laughs> and that uh, I think one. that's a you, yes, you nailed it with that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, sadly, whether it's with single couples or married couples, I often find that the key issue is a fear of intimacy. And people will say, oh, well, I have sex with my husband or, you know, my girlfriend and I have a great sex life and, and, you know, we talk. And when I start talking to both of them, whether they have a great sex life or, or not, it comes down to often people confuse sex with intimacy. We can have sexual intimacy, but sex is not the same as intimacy, right? One is just an animal act. The other one is an act of connecting with another person on a really deep emotional level. And that is where so many of us, um, as a result of childhood damage, life experiences, we become afraid of being truly and deeply connected to other people. And so we've built up all of these walls, these defenses, and we are often not aware that we have them, whether we use the defense of sarcasm, the defense of being overly rational, the defense of, um, you know, bombing somebody with mean words, the defense of arguing and then running away, um, the defense of being verbally abusive. There are so many ways that we can keep people away, and that is fear at work. It is fear of intimacy, because then we become afraid at the very bottom of that, look where we get back to, rejection. If I am really vulnerable and open with this other person, whoever they are, They might not love me for who I am. They might betray me. They might reject me, and thus I'll be left alone. And so isn't that interesting how simple intimacy, it's actually really huge, can be tracked down to that same basic human fear. And don't you think, Doctor, that also our culture sort of thrives on that because it keeps, it can help you as a couple uh, to stay away, to keep, keeps you away from being intimate. You have so many things to do, whether it's a family or a job or traveling, and that all gets caught up in your daily lifestyle, and it really helps you so that you don't have to become intimate with that person because you're always on the go. There's always something else going on, something external. Um, and I see a lot of couples who operate on that system, I guess is what you would say. Um, and it is scary to be 
intimate. Um, so, so what do you do? What do you do? You have a couple who, as you say, they say, well, we have great sex. Well, great sex can be easy. I mean, uh, uh, but intimacy is not. So um, what do you do in a session? Or do you have an example, clinical example? I, I, uh, a really good clinical example is one that I'm working with right now. It's actually one of my most difficult cases where a husband and a wife have been together for, I'll use a different figure, let's say 15 years. And when they come into my office, their marriage, and as often happens, people come to me when things are really, really bad. They don't come in preemptively. They come in when the marriage is just in pieces. And it's the case with this couple. And they have children, and they're constantly bickering and constantly, you know, at each other's throat. And they fight about children and money and sex, the top three things couples fight about. And there is no intimacy. They are two people who are badgering each other. Now, when you look at them as individuals, each, and because I get to know them as a couple and, of course, as individuals, you can see the incredible trauma in his life and in her life. And they're acting out the childhood trauma and the way they were parented in the marriage. And so we're slowly dismantling some of the behaviors. And one of the things that I really work on with couples is the idea of compromise, of not needing. One of the big things that works against intimacy, Catherine, is the need to be right. Because as soon as I need to be right, I'm making you wrong. (laughs) And as soon as you need to be right and demand that you're right, then I become wrong. And so rather than couples being adversarial with each other, if they can learn that no one has to be right or wrong, if we want this marriage, this partnership to work, we need to get out of those fear-based stances because that's what that is. I'm right, you're wrong. It's very fear-based. And come to a mutual place of saying, what is best for us? What is best for our relationship? What is best for, you know, the couple? And when you start making that shift and forget about right and wrong, which is so rife in our political world, so we have all these role models being, you know, right, wrong, but what about in, in the marriage? And then you slowly, and it's a pain, in this case, it's a painstakingly slow process, you see them letting their defenses down. Of course, they'll pop right back up because they don't trust each other. And then, but you keep working at it and allow them to divulge little bits of each other and have the other person appreciate it and see it and not judge it. And that's how you start building some of the trust because without trust, you don't have intimacy. You can't. I see so many p- couples, and they are, as you're describing them, and maybe you can comment on this, because couples perhaps who have been married, who's, who get divorced, let's say, in their 40s and 50s, or become widow- widows or widowers, say, I don't want to get married. I don't want to, which is kind of, I don't want to be intimate anymore. I don't want to have to compromise. I don't want to have to work on things. I don't want it to be... a you know, a chore. I just, I'd rather just be alone. And I hear that more and more. I mean, this is anecdotal, obviously. They haven't done research on it, but um, I think that people, men and women, become more and more discouraged about the the state of marriage. I, mean, I don't know if that's something that that you've observed or that you talk about, but maybe you can comment on it. There are some great statistics on, you know, in later life, how women tend to fare better or they're they're very happy if they're single and don't remarry and that men tend to do worse. Men tend to do much better in later life if they're married. To me, that makes sense. Men are used to being taken care of, so without a woman, they don't know what to do. Women, they were used to being caregivers, so we hang out with our girlfriends and we're very happy. So, but aside from that, when you look at what can people do if they want to be in a partnership, but it's the fear of it being too much work that impedes them from getting back into relationship, you know what I would say? Change your mindset. If you believe that a relationship is too much work, then it will feel like a lot of work. If you believe that relationship is one of the greatest gifts in life, which I personally do, 
whether it's relationship with, you know, a friend or, or a spouse. I believe that is one of the reasons we're here and is to learn how to work in relationship. And I see this in my office a lot where, in fact, I was working with someone yesterday who's gone through a very difficult three-year period with, with a relationship and had to ultimately leave it because it was very destructive for her. Yet as we worked yesterday, she was able to realize that she has done incredible work in that three-year period that she would have never been able to do. She's a much stronger person, much clearer, much more self-aware. And we can, you know, she was able to see that it's one of the gifts of that relationship. So if you're in a later life stage or any life stage and you're thinking, oh, relationship, there's so much work, and you want to be in relationship because you like relationship, switch it up to say relationship is challenging. It is demanding. But when I give it my best, I will help myself grow, I will help my partner grow, and our relationship will grow. Uh, That's a great example. And and, um, so it brings me right into the next question, because you talk about this in the book, what is joy? And how is joy related to fear? Because we don't usually associate joy and fear. Joy. Okay. Um, I came up with an example that I really like. I believe that we are all born with this basic internal light. You know, a child's very happy in the womb. So it comes out with a sense of joy, born with a sense of joy, this internal light. And so as we move through light, I'm sorry, through life, that light, as think of it like a little candle, clear candle votive, gets darkened. And, you know, as the candle burns, you see less and less of that light because of the soot, and it darkens the votive candle. And those are life experiences, that soot, the wounds, the pain, the hurt, not following the passion. So we feel that our light gets dimmer. That's our joy. It is always there. It cannot be taken away from us, but it can get darkened and clouded and clouded because of negative life experiences that bring up fear. Now, how is joy different from, different from happiness, people often ask. So happiness is, the way I look at it, is something that's a little more external, a little closer to pleasure. We can get happiness. We can go on a vacation and feel happy. We can buy a pair of shoes and feel a sense of pleasure, whereas joy is not dependent on external pursuits. It is that sense that we are born with. It's one of the basic emotions of being at peace in a very positive, sweet, joyful way. And so as we clear off our fears and take away that suit and work with our fears and understand them and acknowledge them, then we have that natural sense of joy. And here's a way that you can experience that. If you're ever out to dinner with someone, your spouse or a girlfriend, and they're texting and you're trying to get their attention and you're a little miffed because you're having dinner with them, you're not with their phone, and you're a little irritated and a little fearful that they don't care about you. Well, your, your, your joy is getting foggy, right? It's getting clouded. And then the minute that person, especially if they've never brought the phone out, but the moment they put the phone down and tuck it away, look in your eyes and prioritize you and just see you, don't you feel joy? Yeah, you, joy is... You feel, yeah, and I, I think that when we have to, we have actually two minutes left. But yes, and that's obviously what the book is, uh, the title of the book, Joy from Fear, Create the Life of Your Dreams by Making Fear Your Friend. Uh, I mean, there's so much more in the book. You know, we've touched on a lot of things today during the interview, but uh, we can buy the book. Tell us, um, doctor, where we can buy the book online, I assume, Amazon, bookstores everywhere, and a website we can go to to get more information about you and about the book. Um, thank you. Yes, it's available on Amazon online. It's Barnes & Noble online. Uh, you can request it from your local bookstore if you like buying local. Um, and it's also available through my website, drcarlamanley.com. And the title is Joy from Fear. Great. Great talking to you today. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Uh, yes. It's a pleasure. Great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Sandy Rogers, author and managing director of Franklin Covey's Loyal pra- Loyalty Practice. He's... Um, New book is Leading Loyalty, Cracking the Code to Customer Devotion. In today's hyper-connected world where customers can switch to another provider with a mouse click or rethink a purchase based on a negative review, earning customers true loyalty has proven to be elusive for most organizations. In his new book, Sandy Rogers gets to the heart of the challenge every organization faces, inspiring people at every level to behave in ways that result in customers feeling their experience is one of the best they've ever had. He provides readers with the foundation foundation for building the kind of fierce loyalty that is fueled in the heart through positive and emotional interactions with other people. He's a Harvard Business School graduate and was previously senior VP at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, where he managed the turnaround of the London, England operation. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here. Oh, Catherine, thank you so much. What an honor to be here. Well, it's a great topic because it's one that I'm always wrestling with and I sort of feel, and I have to tell you as a consumer, uh, and I'm so glad to talk to you today, I always feel like, well, now I am, I have the power because, you know, if they're going to be nasty to me at this company, I don't care. I can go to the, uh, you know, I have a myriad of choices and I'm no longer stuck having to buy my stuff or whatever it is from this particular store, retail store, whatever. I now have TripAdvisor, I have Yelp, I can get out all those angry feelings. So I feel very empowered. Uh, so how are they going to, this is what your book is about, how are you going to get us to stay with, with uh, you know, loyalty, customer service, uh, and, and what is customer service today? Let's talk about that. Oh, Catherine, you know, you're right. The, the <laughs> consumers today have so much more power. It's easier to switch. It's, it's so easy not to be loyal. And if we don't feel like we've been treated properly, it's we have an, an incredible microphone with social media to get the word out. Um, so we, we the, the secret here is is not about reward points or frequent flyer miles or discounts. We believe it's about good old fashioned, you know, how we are treated by the people in the organization. You know, how do we feel about the interactions? And the difference, I don't know if you, if you agree with this, between a good and a great experience, just comes down to you know how we feel. Do these people have empathy for us? Do they really care about us? You know, do they take responsibility for figuring out what we're really trying to get done? And, you know, are they generous? I mean, do they do more than we expect? Give us an example. I'm one for examples. Take a company. You don't even have to name the company. But give us an example of a poor customer service. You know, say I have a complaint and a good one where they're going to get me, keep me on board or keep me connected. And how do they do it? 
Well, you know, I, I, as consumers, the, the thing that, that we find to be most frustrating is someone failing to take responsibility for a, a simple request or they, they built a, a maze kind of system that we've got to run through in order to get help with getting our, our Internet back up and running it at home or they put us on hold for 20 minutes or um, it, those, the experiences are really frustrated when there's a lack of responsibility, a lack of ownership for our problems, a lack of empathy, you know, when they finally uh, serve us. It, it, there are great examples. And, you know, it, it, it's not just, you know, taking a, a return of snow tires at a, at a retail store. There, there's little examples. You know, my coffee machine's not working in the morning, and I, I call Keurig, and this incredibly empathetic person um, it walks me through step by step exactly what I need to do to get my machine working so I get my cup of coffee. But just just the way that she did it, just her patience and her oh my gosh, I'm I'm so sorry to hear you having to go through this. It, hang in there. I'm gonna stay, stay stick with you every step of the way. Um, you know the, the fast food restaurant where the the manager comes out and says, "May I refresh your beverage?" Like what? This is this is fast food. These little things don't don't cost a lot, but they let people know how much uh, we care about them. Um, I tell you, one of my favorite stories is a, and this came from a, a group of customers we were talking with. They had saved up for a vacation. Uh, that you know they've traveled. Uh, they've got their kids. They've got their bags. They're on the curb. They're waiting for the hotel shuttle bus to come, and it doesn't come. They call, and we're on our way. Just stand out on the curb. doesn't come. And then a shuttle bus for a competitor hotel stops, opens the door. The driver says, well, are, are you staying at our hotel? And they say, no, we're staying at XYZ. He said, jump in. I'll take you over there. And it's just such an extraordinary example of you know, the empathy and taking responsibility and being generous, the principles that we talk about in this book, and it not only earns the loyalty of the you know customers, this family, but just imagine the loyalty it earns among the employees who are, who are in a position to enrich other people's lives. All right, so I guess you just gave an example of the, the bus stop one where the bus driver offered them a ride. So he's making, as you say, a, a genuine connection with these people. So the next time they make a reservation or they want to stay at a hotel, that's the one they're going to think about, right? Because they have this kind of a service. Um, exactly. But, yeah, but when you talk in the book and you say, listen to their hidden story, I say, or listen to the consumer's hidden story. What's the hidden story? Is that, the, what, what does that mean? Well, you know, we, Catherine, we all have a hidden story. And I'm not going to tell you my hidden story um, unless we have made a, a genuine human connection. Unless I know that you know that you know the other person you really care about hearing it, and then to, to get to get people to share their hidden story, we've got to listen to learn. Um, I you know I love that the Chinese character for listen contains the symbols for the ears, the eyes, and the heart. So we've got to be listening with all three. Well, Stephen Covey said, you know, that, that the deepest need of the human heart is to be truly understood. When somebody really takes the time to get you, and, and so you've got to establish that trust and know that they really care, and then you share that hidden story. Sometimes the story may be obvious, like the bus driver stopping and seeing the, the family, you know, stranded, having gone around the airport three times and seeing them on the curb, but other times somebody comes into your place of business and, and you have no idea what their story is. And so we, we talk about in the book, make that genuine connection. You know, we, we can very quickly tell whether somebody's following a script or whether they sincerely want to connect with us. Um, and, and then, you know, we just got to Well, I want to stop you the there because I want to give you an example because I think that's, a, that, that's true. We can tell the difference. And I've been to myriads of restaurants around the world and I live in a city and you'll sit down and have, let's say, you go to one restaurant where you have terrible service, they don't wait on you, they bring the wrong drink, or on and on. And then, you know, finally, they rectify it, you have your dinner. And at the end, they have this sort of pat way of responding. They bring you a free, free dessert. Well, I don't eat desserts. Talk about not knowing your customer. Neither does my partner, my boyfriend, neither does he. And so, like, that really doesn't relate to the service. It doesn't relate to me. And it makes me more angry. It's, well, you know, this is what you do when you screw up everything and then you give someone a free dessert that they don't want. That's not, that's the, uh, that's a 180 from what you're talking about, I think, right? Yeah, that's right. And as, as consumers, we see right through those things. 
it's like the scripts people follow when we call to report a problem. Um, it, 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 don't waste the money on the free dessert. It would have been far more useful to say, you know, oh my gosh, um, I'm so sorry that things didn't work out tonight. I'm, I'm, you're just offering a sincere apology, you know, when problems come up. What can I do to make this right for you guys? I mean, I could bring you a dessert. I can get you a drink. I, I just want to apologize and tell you how sorry I am that tonight wasn't the perfect uh, dinner that, that we had all hoped it would be. And in many cases, people are generally blown away that, wow, I mean, that you're actually offering a sincere apology without making excuses, without sort of shirking responsibility. One of the things that I do like, and this is maybe an example of what you're talking about, is I go to a, a lot of theater, uh, Broadway, off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, and, and now I see very often, I, after a couple of days after seeing a show, I get an email saying, what did you think of the show? And they're asking you what you thought, good or bad. And they kind of connect you to the theater and to the show. Uh, and it, it gets, and then I get very interested. I get interested in their future productions. And now I've had something to say about what I've seen. Um, I think that's kind of a good example, or that is a good example of what, what you talk about in your book. And Kevin, that's a great example of following up. So as responsible people, um, you know, we follow up to find out, well, how did we do? You know, what did you think of the show? You know, what, if anything, could we have done better? You know, particularly if it's in a development kind of stage. Um, and, and really listen. And emails are, are certainly one way to do that. E- email surveys get very low response rates um, because we're all busy and we get bombarded with email survey opportunities. In my work at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, uh, we, we would have branch managers who said, I need to get feedback. I can't wait for the survey results. And I said, well, what prevents you from standing at the door and asking people, hi, you know, my name is Sandy. I'm the manager. I'd, I'd love your feedback. Well, what, what if anything could we have done better with your car rental? And if they, if they believe you're sincere and you actually, you know, want to know, people will tell you. And what a great opportunity to get feedback that you can act on right now. So rather than waiting for a survey, um, learn about it today. And if there's an issue, go in and coach your team or celebrate what they're doing well. So in other words, you don't, yeah, you don't have to wait for the surveys. You would, if you just go with your, I was going to say, kind of go with your gut. If you feel what you want to connect and you're ten, connecting in a positive way, then do it is what, right? I mean, you can, there's nothing wrong with connecting with your customers in person, verbally. Um, so what there's else can nothing, we do? Yeah. Go ahead. Other yeah, things. There's that, nothing more powerful than that genuine human connection. The founder of Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Jack Taylor, said, you know, it's really simple. When people walk out of these branches, they should feel like, wow, that was one of the best experiences I've ever had. And that feeling most often comes from interacting with people and empowering people to be themselves. Are there any, would you say, um, Sandy, are there any industries or businesses that are tougher than others to make those kinds of connections and to engage people and, you know, cause them to be loyal. I mean, I have to say this is kind of a standing joke with with me and some of my friends, and I'm not going to name the company. It probably wouldn't make any difference, but some of these huge companies that deal with communications. And I'll say, you know, I've got a problem today. It's going to be like a, a one-hour thing that I'm going to have to go through. To I already know it. You know, I, I, it's like calm myself down, get ready to sit there, prepare myself for all this kind of the interaction. And you probably know what companies I'm talking about, but it's never yeah. usually a particularly good experience. Um, so I guess my question is, are there companies that it's more difficult to, to provide this, you know, cracking the code to customer devotion, um, it, more difficult in some companies um, than others. You, you, there are certainly <laughs> industries that are notorious for poor customer service, um, but we think it comes more down to, to leadership and, and whether uh, leaders have put their people on the front line, whether they're in a call center or they're you know, manning email responses or it's face-to-face, putting people into a position to, to, to be themselves, to enrich the lives of other people, to live the principles and the practices that we talk about in leading loyalty. Um, and, and, you know, so are people, in, you know, inspired to, to make it easy for customers? It should never take an hour to get a problem resolved. And, and if it's going to take an hour, 
you at the end of that should feel like, wow, where do you get people like that? I mean, that's just incredible. Um, you know, you should walk away feeling like these people really care about, you know, me and, and getting me up and running again. And, and I really appreciate what they did. I'm going to give you another, I'm giving you all these examples, <laughs> uh, negative examples, difficult examples. Here's another one that I encounter. I do a lot of traveling and, uh, I use a, uh, a company from one of my credit cards to, to help make reservations and stuff. And, uh, for a while they were using these call centers in countries where I really couldn't understand people on the phone. And this is supposed to be a service to make it easier so I don't have to make my own reservations and, and plane and, and uh, 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 hotel reservations. And they're reading a script, and at the same time I still right. can't understand what they're saying. And I got to the point where I would just hang up. I can't, I just, I can't understand you. And then, because this is not, it's supposed to be pleasant and supposed to be helpful, and it's having the opposite effect. I see they've changed their, I think I've, they, they've changed. You talk about management. It seems to me that they have changed. And now that they have people who speak, I have my language so that I can understand them and they can understand me. It works both ways. Um, and I've noticed a change over the past like two years. So that's another example of, well, initially very poor customer service. Right. And, and I, for example, um, American Express it yeah. made a dramatic uh, turnaround in from a focus on average uh, call time, which you know drives the, the cost of serving cardholders. To we're not we're not going to keep track of that. You now in answering uh, calls, create promoters. You know, figure out what 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 the cardholder, what the customer, what the client needs, and take whatever time you need to to, to make it right for them. And, and the impact um, was dramatic, not only on, you know, the customers and the money they were spending and how they were feeling in the future, but also on the, the employees, you know, rather than being, you know, held to a, to a stopwatch. It's like, you know, I, I get to make a difference for people. You know, we, we go home at the end of the day and we've been working hard and in the whirlwind of our daily lives. If I can, you know, make somebody's life a little brighter or make a positive impact, it, I, I'm just happier at the end of the day. Um, and we just think this is so important for leaders to, you, you think about the people on the front line, often the lowest paid, the least trained, the highest turnover. But, and yet these are the folks that have the biggest impact on determining whether we're going to be loyal or not. So why not, like Zappos, for example, put them into a position to, you know, we may not have the shoes, but I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll figure out where the shoes are and we'll get them to you. And they promise they'll get there in two days, and then they ship them overnight and surprise them by getting them a day ahead of time, which is incredibly generous. So how can we earn loyalty through our behavior and bringing these principles? We learn these principles in kindergarten. You know, when I talk about empathy, responsibility, and generosity, people say, yeah, I mean, that's kindergarten stuff. And it is. But just because it's, it's common sense, unfortunately, as, as you're mentioning, it's, it's not common practice in enough of our business interactions today. So how can organizations bring those things to life more often? And that's what this book's all about. Well, here's a, a company that I always say does exactly what you're talking about. They practice what they preach. Has always been for me, like AAA. I mean, I don't, wherever I, I have always belonged to AAA for years and years and years and years. And any time I've had a problem, whether I'm in a big city or I'm out in the country or I'm at my house, uh, and there's a problem. They are there. They're there in record time. Whoever comes to fix the car or whatever they do, they fix it. Um, it works. They, you know, have to tow the car. But I've never had a bad experience. I've, oh, they, and I, you know, I really am not a, you know, I'm not, I don't know who runs the company or how, but anyway, that's one of the, for me, anyway, that's always been a company that sort of really gets it. Agree. I'm a big fan of AAA, and I've I've had a similar. They are very reliable. They they come through, and um, you sense empathy that they they actually care about getting you uh, back back up and going in your car. Right. What else? So this we, stuff we, isn't. We, it, it's, yeah, you know, ahead. it's simple stuff, and, and you know, organizations think, oh, we need a loyalty program. We got to have you know better rewards or, or discounts and. But, you know, those are relatively easy stroke of the pen kinds of things. But the harder thing is how can we change the behavior 
of the tens, hundreds, thousands of people that are touching our customers um, so that when people walk away from an interaction, they say, wow, these people are amazing. And it's just, it's just, it's a lot, you know, TD Bank has this policy. It takes one to say yes, two to say no. In other words, and we love how they, they, they give every person responsibility for saying yes whenever possible. But think of it, how many organizations where, where no is the default answer, right? I mean, because they're trying to protect the, right, the organization from the customers and the employees, from that one in a hundred who might take advantage. Uh, when 99 of the 100 are, have no intention of taking advantage, we just want basic humanity, just service, somebody to care about us. That's another good example. I, I, that's been my experience with TD Bank as well. They're easy. They make it comfortable. They, it's it, it, all of those things that you're describing. That that is, a, I, I think that is another one of those. What about grocery stores? Because you know, um, you know, you talk about it's really people on the front lines. The lowest people are getting the lowest paid. You know, are working in the lowest paying jobs, who are the ones who connect with the customers. And uh, I think grocery stores, which we all go to or have to go to, or you know, now we can order on Amazon. And but still. There are some stores that are great with customer service. I've been to grocery stores where, you know, I have to beg for someone to wait on me and the people standing behind the counter are talking to each other, but not really wanting uh, to work, <laughs> at, you know, sell yeah. something to me. And that's an issue. And there are some that really stand out and others that have great service. Um, so that's, I mean, that's another sort of example of companies. And those are companies that we all have, you know, we all have to buy food. So every day. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, how often, Catherine, have you, have you been at a grocery store where the, the employee is you know, the checker is, is doing their job and they're not making eye contact with you? And then comes the phrase that they've been trained to ask every single person, find everything. And yeah. they don't even look at you. They're not even really interested in your response, but it's part of their script. And, and, and we know that. Right, yeah. <laughs> you almost want to say, "I know I didn't." <laughs> I mean, and, and just sort of see how far you can take it. But then the other end is, I've got a local grocery store in, in St. Louis where I lived for many years, where I grew up. And you know, I remember walking out one day, and the the, the brother of the owner of this little corner store, you know, said, "You know, thank you, thank you for coming." And and I thought, well, that, what do you mean, thank you for coming? It's not like I've come to your house to a party, but it's just just the sincerity. Just, just the human connection. Just, it, it wasn't that it didn't offer me anything extra, no free dessert. I mean, it was just, thank you for coming. It, it, it's the little things today in the whirlwind of our busy lives um, can make an enormous difference in, in sort of breaking through the clutter and letting people know, I see you. I, I care about you. I appreciate your business. And we believe that is the secret to earning the fierce loyalty that every organization wants but they've got to put their people into a position to do that more often. And so in the book, we talk about these huddles where, where you just you take 15 minutes a week and you celebrate people on your team that are doing the things that we're talking about. You say, I want to tell a story about Catherine and this thing I saw her do this week in our store. Because it's not, all, it's not just what's measured that, it's, that improves. It's what gets celebrated with our team. Yeah, I mean that's 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 a great example. It's um, how many companies do many companies do that? I mean, is that or is this is this a very a new a new concept? More and more, we we find this idea of having a short huddle. It's difficult to take people off the front line and have them go to training for a couple of days. I mean, the, the busy organizations are under tremendous financial pressure. So in this book, we talk about these principles and practices, you know, basic ideas, you know, empathy. So how do I show empathy? I've got to make a genuine human connection. I've got to listen to learn. And, and we, we teach it in, in uh, a chapter. And then at the end of the chapter, there's a little huddle guide that you can do with your team, uh, with your family, with your friend group, where, where you celebrate people who are doing these things. You talk about, well, how, how do I actually apply this thing in, in the stuff that I'm doing every day? And then we make a commitment to each other to try to do it more often. Um, and so within this busy life we have, we, we remind ourselves of the power of these things we learned in kindergarten, um, and they become habits. Um, and, and they just not only do our customers and the people in a personal life as well as business life, 
not only do those things benefit, but we just feel better about the stuff we're doing every day. A couple minutes left. I just want to sort of give it just sort of a, a feel for now that we we touched on it maybe more in the beginning of the interview, but how is what, what's the impact that the Internet is having on customer loyalty? Well, it's two it's minutes. Anyways, <laughs> uh, sure. The, the Internet's great. It makes it when designed well. When the people who are designing the apps and the internet, you know, programs that we all, you know, rely on to do our banking and our airlines and our hotels and our all the things that we've come to to love about, you know, using the internet, um, the people who are designing these things have to be living the principles that we've been talking about. You know, when I when I go to a website to make a, a reservation, was this done with somebody who wants to save me time? You know, who cares about me? Are they not asking me things that they should already know because of our relationship? You know, are they taking responsibility for helping me get the job done without having me jump through a bunch of useless additional uh, steps? Are they being generous with my time and reducing my anxiety? Um, so these principles come to play uh, in the internet now. If even, and as much as we all love Amazon, sometimes things will go wrong and, and you need to talk to a human being. And I, I had the most amazing experience talking to somebody at Amazon to resolve an issue and the way they handled it was incredible. And so I may only need to talk to somebody, you know, one in a hundred transactions, but to know that there's somebody there that will treat me with these principles and, and take care of my problem um, just gives me great confidence uh, the other 99% of the time. Well, it was. We have a minute left, but it, this is uh, there's just so much good stuff in your book. And uh, give us the website that we can go to. Um, Sandy Rogers, that's who we're talking to, and the title of his book is um, "Lending Loyalty: Cracking the Code to Customer Devotion." So we can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere. I make the assumption, and a website that we can go to to learn more about well the book and about you. Leadingloyaltybook.com. Uh, and then you, if, and actually, people go and order the book before April 16th when it comes out. We will, um, they can register to be sent a deck of cards. They're leading loyalty cards. Uh, there's one card that summarizes each of the uh, first 11 chapters in the book so that if you want to do this huddle, it makes it very easy uh, with your group, whether it's your family or your group of friends or your, or your work group. We, Thank we you, Sandy. So great. To, I, had to, I had to cut you off, but um, there's obviously so much more to talk about. But thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Catherine. Really appreciate your time. Yep. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 